Uh, we are in our, what series are we in? August. forgot what month it was. Uh, our Anchored series that we started last week. And uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, let me just briefly sum it up so you can kind of know uh, what this is about and what we're doing. It's based on the idea that uh, we are all metaphorically anchored to something in our life. There's, there are anchors in our life that, that we trust to keep us stable in rough waters, that we can trust to help us through the storms that come in life. And as Christians, we know that it's preferred and it's, it's the desire that we would have Jesus as our anchor, amen? But we're also smart enough to know that just because we're Christians or just because we're in church doesn't mean that he's necessarily the anchor in our life. In fact, we, I, we had a picture that we're gonna put back up there that kind of gives an illustration of what we're talking about to paint a picture, that we, are, uh, that we are a boat in this metaphor we're using this month. And uh, we, are, we are living on an unstable force, which is our life, which is everything in our life from relationships to your health, to your finances, to your education, to your goals, your career, everything in life that's unstable, which is basically everything in life. And we are living in that in our life. And then the, the ocean floor, the bottom, that is stable and doesn't change and is consistent, that is our Heavenly Father. And the idea is that we would be anchored to our Heavenly Father with Jesus, that he would be our anchor, amen? That's the desire we all have, but anything that God desires for us, you have an enemy too that's going to try to counterfeit what God wants to do in your life. In fact, that's what we're gonna actually be talking about today. And I wanna go ahead and uh, give you my text verse. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me if you would, please just in honor of reading the word of God together out of Hebrews 6. This part of this was my text verse last week as well, but I wanna do it again this week because I wanna make sure we're understanding we're all on the same page. There'll be other verses to share as well, but this is what we're doing at the top here. Hebrews 6, 18, it says, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Uh, last week, we talked about Jesus being the anchor of our soul, and today, we're gonna talk more about the counterfeit anchors and how to recognize that. In fact, that's the title of my message today is Counterfeit Anchors. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we love you today. Thank you so much for your presence in this house, God. We are so blessed to be able to come together and to learn more of you, to worship you, to be in community. There's so many things to be thankful for, God. You have been faithful in every instance in our life, God. And we pray that you would show up in this time, Lord, that your manifest presence would be in this place to transform our hearts, to make us more like you, to give us your mind, and that you would be glorified in it all, God, and that it would be for our good. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. You could be seated. Okay, so counterfeit anchors. What I wanna do, I wanna kinda, I wanna define the word counterfeit, first of all, which I, I'm not, uh, I, I understand that most of you or probably all of you know what counterfeit is, but I wanna define it and lay it out here so you can kinda see some key words and kinda see where we're going here today. The definition I found for counterfeit is an exact imitation of something valuable or important with the intention to deceive or defraud. So if you guys leave that up there for a moment, because I want to pull out a couple key words here. First of all, it says an exact imitation. So what we know about a counterfeit is that it is meant to look exactly like the real thing. You've probably heard it before. When people counterfeit money, you'll never find a counterfeit $13 bill because everybody would know it's fake. A counterfeit is always going to be one that looks like the real thing so as to try to deceive or defraud you. That's the idea of a counterfeit. And a counterfeit is one of the most effective ways to deceive people. 
because it looks so much like the real thing. It's not blatantly different. It's supposed to be very similar so that we can be deceived by it. And this is exactly why the enemy of your soul, Satan, employs this tactic in your life. Sometimes without our knowledge, because sometimes the stuff he does is so close to the real thing, it's easy to miss it. In fact, Jesus very clearly said who Satan is in John 8, when he described who he is and what his character is. I'm gonna read it for you in John 8, 44. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I wish Jesus would just be clear about what he's trying to say. <laughs> he's saying that Satan is a liar, that's the tongue he speaks, and that's all he knows. Basically, his, his plan for you and me is to deceive us and to defraud us. You see, Satan is not a creator. He doesn't create anything. He's a distorter. He takes things that are created and he distorts them and he makes counterfeits of them to try to deceive God's people, to try to deceive all of us. And he takes what God has designed for our good and he tries to turn it to evil. You know the verse in Romans 8, 28 that says he takes all things and works them out for the good of those who love him. Your enemy tries to do the opposite. He tries to take the good that God has given into your life and make it bad, make it evil and to deceive you and defraud you. Now, there are a lot of enemy counterfeits. There are a lot of counterfeit anchors that are out there that would want to be the anchor, the, the, the thing that you trust in that's contrary to what God would have for you. I wanna give you just a few of them right here at the top before uh, the body of my, my message today is gonna to be more about the, our relationship with him and the, the, the counterfeit anchors in regards to that. But there's some just off the top of my head that I put down that I wanna share with you today just to start painting this picture and give you an idea of what we're talking about today. And these anchors, these, these counterfeit anchors are not opposites. You'll see, I have a little table they're gonna put up. These are, they're not opposites, they're actually very similar. So similar sometimes that we can easily be deceived by it. It's enough to fool us many, many times. So let me give you the first one. The first one is joy. God's intent for you and me is for joy, right? That we would have the joy of the Lord in our life. Very biblical, it's a, it's a positive thing, it's a good thing. The enemy's distortion of that, the counterfeit anchor for joy is happiness. It's the relentless pursuit of happiness. That's what the enemy would want you to think that the joy of the Lord is, that it's about going after happiness. It's about me. It's about me doing whatever I need to do to make me happy. That's what happiness is. And the enemy wants you to think that that's what joy is. But we know enough to know that happiness is actually just an emotion, it's circumstantial. But joy is actually something that can be sustained even in difficult situations. No one's happy when they lose a loved one to a sickness or a disease, but you could still have joy in the midst of it. But the enemy would want you to think that the joy of the Lord he's talking about is just to go after happiness. Do whatever you have to do to be happy. If it feels good, do it. It's the premise of humanism that's prevalent all over the world today. That's his desire for you. Then there's also purity. God's intent for you is that you would be pure, that you'd be pure in relationships, that you would live sexually pure. The enemy's distortion of that, the counterfeit anchor for that is love. Not God's version of love, not agape love, but the world's version of love. God would want us to be pure. The enemy would want you to feel like, well, purity is really just like, if you're in the confines of a relationship, it's a way to express your love to someone to be physically intimate with them. That's how you express your love. So it's still kind of pure because at least you're exclusive with each other for the time being. That's, it's, it's similar enough that many of us fall into it. 
Many have fallen into that trap thinking, well, at least I'm not like, you know, just going out and having one night stands. At least I'm in a relationship and it's love and I'm expressing my love to that person. But that's not really purity. But it's easy to miss that because of the counterfeit. There's also forgiveness. God's heart for us is that we would forgive. We know the word is very clear. We talk about it here all the time because it's so important that we can miss the, so much of the blessings and power of God in our life because we don't forgive. That forgiveness is unconditional, that we're supposed to give it to people. The distortion of that that the enemy would want you to have is to just to forget. It's very similar, because sometimes people even put it together, forgive and forget. You can't really forgive that person. What they did was pretty harsh. You just need to try to forget them. If you could just forget them and not think about them, get them out of your life and just try to move, move past it and not think about it anymore, it's just as good as forgiving. And you can even feel that way for a while. You can get away with it for a while until you run into that person at the grocery store and your heart rate all of a sudden goes through the roof and you're dodging down aisles to miss that person. Or it comes up in a conversation, next thing you know, you're triggered because you haven't really forgiven. But the enemy would say, ah, just forget, it's close enough. And then there's peace. God's intent for us is that we would have the peace that surpasses understanding, amen? A wonderful peace that cannot be taken away, that the world can't give and can't take away. The enemy's distortion of that is comfort. Peace and comfort, they're the same thing. Just live your life in such a way that pursue as much comfort as possible and that will bring peace into your life. Just try to make sure you're as comfortable and that the things that can agitate you or cause issues in your life, just get rid of them and do everything for comfort. Wrap yourself in bubble wrap and try to be as comfortable as possible and that will bring peace. But we know enough to know that that's not the same thing. That true peace only comes from depth of relationship with Jesus. Peace can't be taken because our comfort's taken, if it's real peace. But these are the things the enemy would wanna do. And it all boils down to this. Counterfeits from the enemy are designed to give you just a little bit of hope. They're designed to give you just enough to hold on. Not enough to give you freedom, but just enough to hold on. You see, we think too oftentimes that the enemy's plan for us, that his goal for us is that we would be completely hopeless that we would just be in the bottom of the ditch with no hope, no nothing, that that's what the enemy wants. That he's just so mean, he's so nasty, he's so ugly that that's what he wants is for you to be completely hopeless. I can tell you today, that's not what he wants for you. Because you know what happens when you get to the bottom of the pit and in the ditch and at the end of your rope? That's where a lot of times people meet Jesus. Is when we get to the end of ourselves. In fact, it's kind of biblical <laughs> that we have to get to the end of ourselves to be able to get to Jesus. He meets us in those places of complete hopelessness. He meets us in those places of complete despair. When there's nothing left, many of you turn to Jesus because you got to that place in your life. You went through a divorce or you went through a, a very difficult situation, a loss of a loved one, you lost a job, something happened and you felt like you just didn't know how you could go on and you met Jesus. That's what happens when we get hopeless. The woman with the issue of bleeding, she, she'd given all her money, she'd spent a bunch of money trying to get fixed. She couldn't get fixed, she couldn't get rid of this issue. And so she gets to Jesus and she just lunges out just to touch the hem of his garment. She met Jesus because of her hopelessness. The paralytic that had no hope to ever walk again had four friends that took him to the roof and cut the roof open and dropped him down into this house where Jesus was and he met Jesus, changed his life. Prisoners, people in jail get saved all the time. Prison ministries are very powerful for salvation because a lot of those people are at the end of the road. A lot of those people are hopeless because they just don't know where else to turn. I can say personally, in my own way, I got to the end of my rope for me to meet Jesus. 
And many of you did too. So the enemy of your soul does not want you to be completely hopeless because that's where you meet Jesus and that's the last thing he wants. So what he wants to do is give you just enough hope to carry on. But he wants you to have hope in things that aren't real. He wants to take those things and twist it. Like if I pursue happiness, that'll give me a little bit of hope, even though it's not real joy. If I try to forget this person, that gives me some hope that I can move on, but it's not real forgiveness. And so he wants you to have this counterfeit hope because counterfeit things are designed to make you feel like you have something that you don't really have. That's what they're designed to do. Counterfeit money, if you have counterfeit money in your pocket, it's designed to make you feel like you have some money that you don't really have. And that's exactly what your enemy wants to do. He wants you to feel like you have something that you don't really have in your life. You know, three of the most counterfeited things in all the world are Nike Air Jordans, Rolex watches, and anything Gucci. <laughs> you're barking up the wrong tree if you're trying to sell me fake Gucci, I can tell you that. But the Rolex I could get behind, I do like a watch. But those are the three of the most counterfeited things in the world. Do you know why? There's, there's a few reasons. One of them is because of their value. Notice you don't see a lot of counterfeit Timex watches on the street. There's not a lot of counterfeit Amazon essential clothing because they're all affordable. These things are incredibly valuable. And so people want them. And they're, you fall easy prey to it because you want it, even though you can't really afford it. So when you see a pair of Air Jordans that are only 30 bucks instead of 800, whatever they are, how much are they, Cameron? They're expensive, we know that. He's got a few pair himself. <laughs> and when you see that you feel, oh, I can get those, and you become a victim to the counterfeit because you want it and you can't really afford it. There's so much value in it, so it's easy for the consumer to be fooled. Because, excuse me, because if you're not intimately acquainted with that product, it's easy to get fooled. See, I'm not intimately acquainted with Air Jordans, so I could be fooled very easily. If you just said they were Air Jordans, I'd probably believe it. Cameron would spot it a mile away because he's intimately acquainted with them. And, if, we're, and if, you're not, if you weren't there when the watch was built, you don't know if it has real Rolex parts in it. If it looks like one, why isn't it one? Because we're not intimately acquainted with those things so we can be easily fooled. It's the same thing with our faith. It's the same thing spiritually in our life. If we're not intimately acquainted with the real thing, we can be easily fooled by the counterfeits. And church, it happens every day, every day. Our lack of intimacy with God will cause us to be easy fodder for the counterfeits of the enemy in our life. Jesus wants to be your anchor. But we talked about it last week that being, having Jesus as your anchor and be, having him as the one you trust and him being the stabilizing force in your life comes with a cost. And I read a verse last week that kind of sums up what it is to be a disciple. I'm gonna read it again because I'm gonna, I'm gonna break these down today as I continue on with my message. It's out of Matthew 16 and 24, where Jesus was talking to his disciples. And look what he said. He said, if any of you, everyone say any of you. So that's you. Wants to be my follower, wants to be my disciple, wants to be a Christian. Any of those words fit there. You must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. So Jesus gives three very clear commands here if you want to be his follower. 
if you want him to call you a Christian, not the world, not the church, not people around you, if you actually want Jesus to say, yes, he's one of mine or she's one of mine, this is what it is. Give up, take up, and follow. Give up your life. Some versions say deny yourself. It's about giving up your own way. Your life is not your own anymore. Taking up your cross, a symbol of surrender, a symbol of sacrifice, and then follow him. He's your leader now. He is the one that we live our life for. And Satan, knowing exactly what all this looks like to be a disciple, would say, well, we can't have that. So he comes up with counterfeits to these things that we can easily fall prey to. Now, he wouldn't be blatant in doing this because we would recognize it too quickly. He'll do something similar enough to this that we can implement in our life to keep us in bondage, to keep us from really being free, walking in the freedom that God has for us. And I wanna go through these three commands today and kind of give you the counterfeits for it that I believe the enemy brings into our life. These are not exhaustive, obviously, but these are, these are pertinent that I think many of us deal with and, or have dealt with and are dealing with even now. Okay, so the first command he says is to give up. Give up your way, to give up your life. The counterfeit to that is the anchor of shame. The enemy would want you to have an anchor of shame in your life. And the idea behind Jesus saying, give up your life, is meant to be that your life is not your own, that you are to deny yourself. You deny your selfish desires, that you're living for a higher purpose than what you were before you knew Jesus. It's pretty clear if you look at the scripture that that's what it means. But if we're not intimately acquainted with him, we can be easily fooled by the counterfeit of what the enemy would want you to think is that it's actually about shame. It's actually uh, giving up your life or denying yourself is actually means that you should just hate yourself. Because man, you were, you were a piece of work before you met Jesus. There are so many things you did, you're just lucky he didn't kill you and, and snuff you out before you met him because of all the bad stuff you did. You were so toxic, so selfish, all these things. Your life is meaningless because of all you've done. And God, he might forgive you and let you go to heaven, but he's not gonna forget those things. And the enemy would want us to walk in the shame that comes from that, to be ashamed of what we've done in our life. It's very fatalistic the language here, but that's exactly what the enemy would want. And unfortunately, there are many, many, many people in the faith that are allowing this to be their anchor, that it's actually shame, that they have self-pity or self-hatred or, or not believing that God could do anything good for them because of all the mistakes they've made in the past. That giving up my life is really just about, I'm just thankful that, he, that he's letting me be part of the family, but that's really all I can have, that's all I deserve. Now, not everyone deals with this every day. Some of, some of us have understood the idea of shame and that there's no place for it, and we walk in freedom in that. But, but most of us, or all of us, have probably come to some place in life where it's something that we did have to deal with. But if you're intimately acquainted with the real thing, you can see this coming a mile away. And that's God's heart for us, is that we would see it coming. Scores of Christians allow shame to be their anchor and keep them from believing that God can do anything great in their life because I just don't deserve it. I know there's some of you under the sound of my voice that feel that, that you cannot believe that God would do something great in your life because you just don't deserve it. You're just not good enough. It's not that you don't believe God can do it. In fact, you believe it for other people. You can pray for other people. You can believe that God can heal. He can restore relationships. He can provide in your need. He can do all these things in your life, but I don't know about for me. I mean, if I do pray about it, it's just gonna be a kind of a passing prayer and I'm gonna kind of write it off as ah, I'm hoping, but not really believing for anything. 
And you've got to a place in your life where you just don't believe anything great is ever gonna happen. God's never gonna do a great transformative work. He's never gonna show himself in a manifest way in your life. He's never gonna do anything to show you how much he really loves you. You're just trying to hold on, you're white knuckling it until you can maybe get to heaven one day. And church, I can tell you that is so God's not, not God's plan for you. That is the opposite of what he wants for you. Feeling like you don't deserve it. The irony of that is, is right. We don't deserve it. But that focus is wrong when it's, I don't deserve it because none of us deserve it. It's not about whether or not you deserve it. Every one of us deserves to be eternally separated from God. Every single one of us. We've all done more than enough to be eternally separated from God. Every one of us. So it's not about what we deserve. If you feel like you don't deserve it, can I say today you just don't really know what it means to be a child of the king? Because a child of the king isn't necessarily any better than anybody else. It's just in the family. As a dad, if my, if my kids do something that disappoints me or do something they shouldn't have done, it doesn't mean I cut them off. It doesn't mean I stop being a father to them or they stop getting the perks of being part of my family because that's my child. And if you understand that you're a child of God, that you are, you are part of the family of God and that you have a spirit of sonship that where you can say, Abba, Father, that word just really means daddy, that he is your dad, then it doesn't matter that you don't deserve it. You get the blessings of being in a relationship with Jesus because you are in a relationship with Jesus. That's where it's at. But your enemy would want you to think, you're not good enough. You're just not good enough. And we walk around in this shame. We walk around beating ourselves up. We walk around just stagnant in our faith. The only way that shame can live in the life of a believer is if you either don't know the truth, you don't believe the truth, or you forgot the truth. Because the truth is very, very, very clear. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible. It's short and it's, it's hidden towards the back of the book, but it is so beautiful. And it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now listen, let me, let me take a practical application to this, okay? We've all been in trouble with somebody over us uh, where we've had to get forgiveness, right? Whether it's with a parent, uh, a teacher, uh, or a cop, you know, probably all been pulled over at some point, not all, but a lot of us. I've been pulled over enough for all of us, so. Um, and there's, you know, when you get pulled over and you knew you were speeding and the cop comes up and for whatever reason, they said, we're gonna give you a warning. And you know, you just go, whew, thank you, Lord. And you drive away knowing you should have got a ticket. And even the residue of what you did, just did is still on you. Like you still feel it like, I really got away with it there, you know? And if the cop wanted to, if you went and saw that cop a week later, he would remember or she would remember that they let you off the hook, right? Because it's still there. You just didn't get in trouble for what you did. They forgave it, but it's still what, something you did. When Jesus forgives, it's totally different. When he forgives, it's not, he doesn't bring it up again. He doesn't say, you know, remember that time last week where I forgave you for what you did? First John 1, 9 says that he, he forgives us and cleanses us. That word there means to purify. When you purify something, it's as if it was never there. It's as if it never happened. The Bible says that we are justified before God. And somebody a long time ago said justified means it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means. So there's no bringing it up. There's no shame. Shame can only come from remembering what happened. 
okay? He doesn't remember it. He chooses not to remember it. It's gone. If anybody's bringing it up, it's either you, somebody in your life, or your enemy. Those are the only ones bringing it up. There's absolutely no place for shame because shame makes our faith stagnant. It makes us ineffective for the kingdom. It makes us ineffective in life. We don't have any joy. We don't have any peace. We don't have any fruit of the spirit in our life because we're just hoping to hang on until God lets us in at the end. Let me tell you something. Your faith is, it feels like it's dying when you're living like that. And our God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Your faith is meant to be alive and active and and pursuing him and living with a boldness that yes, I messed up more than I can even express. And when the enemy reminds you of it, you just say, yeah, I remember all that. That was terrible, but I praise God because it is not being counted against me. It's as if it never happened in my life. Thank the Lord. When Jesus said to give up your way, he's saying, just give me your life. Like even even though all all these mistakes you made, I still want your life. I'm still bringing you in. There's no place for shame. There's no place for condemnation. There's no place for guilt in the life of a believer. It's a counterfeit anchor that holds us down. What you need to do is let that anchor go, cut it loose and let it go to the bottom of the ocean floor where it belongs because it has no hold over you except the power you give it. All right, so then he goes on to say, take up, take up your cross. The counterfeit to that is the anchor of strength. Now, the anchor of shame, we all know is a bad thing, but the anchor of strength sounds like a good thing. It can be good. The idea behind take up your cross that Jesus has given us here is a picture of sacrifice and surrender. Because that's what he did when he took up the cross and died for us. He surrendered his life even unto death. He sacrificed his life even unto death. That's the real picture of it. But the enemy would want you to think, well, that's a picture of strength. That cross was heavy. So Jesus is saying to pick up your cross, you need to be strong. God wants you to be strong in the faith. He wants you to use your strength and glorify God with it. Be strong, don't show weakness, be strong. God loves you so you can be strong in the faith. Don't don't be weak, don't be anemic, don't uh, don't rely on anybody, be independent and strong in your faith. That's what the enemy wants. And see, it's a counterfeit and so it's very similar to what God actually wants for us. In fact, you probably even heard all those things said, even from a pulpit or from people that love you in, in life and, and with great intentions. But the idea that we are to be strong, that we are to, what's the saying, uh, uh, do your best and let God do the rest, that is horrible advice, church. Horrible advice. It's not about us doing our best. It's not about us being as strong as we can be and get to a certain point and then God picks it up from there when we can't do anymore. That's not what it's about. It's unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical in our life. When it comes to our faith, It is not about trying to be strong in your faith. Paul says it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Look what he says. He said, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the weak things. Now you could read that and think, oh, that just means he took the down and outs. He took those that, you know, just didn't really have any education or weren't very strong, kind of weak-minded. He took them and made them great. No, this 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 is how God moves in the hearts of his people. He doesn't want us to be strong. He doesn't want us to have man's wisdom. He wants us to rely on him. He wants us to be completely surrendered and devoted to him. He's not looking for our strength, he's looking for our surrender. And this is a very difficult thing for us to grasp because in the natural, strength is good. It's a good thing. But spiritually, it's a whole different story. It's the complete opposite. And you would think, well, why doesn't he want us just to be strong and he could just pick up our weaknesses where we, where we come short? Because first of all, your strength's never gonna be enough. 
And second of all, when you are working in your strength, you're actually limiting God's strength in your life. Now, I didn't make that up. That's, that's crystal clear in 2 Corinthians. And it's a verse that is very difficult for us to understand sometimes. But Paul was lamenting to God. He was saying, God, he's had this thorn in his flesh. And he, the Bible says he pleaded with God three times, please take this away from me. And look at what God, how God responded to him. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let me read that again. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. How does Christ's power rest on me? Embracing my weakness. Not trying to be as strong as I can be and letting him do the rest. Embracing my weakness so that he can, his power will rest on me. That is why I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul sounds like a crazy person, but he knew. And you know too, if you've gone to any depth of relationship with the Lord, that it really is, it's when we get to the end. It's when we get to the end of our rope. It's when we get to the end of our own sufficiency and we realize how insufficient we are. That's where the power of God comes into our life. You want the power of God in your life? Stop trying to be so strong and independent. Stop trying to do everything you can do and asking God just to help you. And just, God, I need you to come alongside me here as I do all this. It's about throwing yourself at his feet at the mercy of Jesus and saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. If you don't do it through me, it's not gonna happen. It doesn't mean we sit back and with our arms crossed just wait for God to miraculously do stuff in our life, but it's about embracing the fact that it's all about him, that it's all about him. I want his glory in every situation in my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna step aside and let him come in and let his glory be revealed so that I don't get the credit and he gets the glory for it because that's also very important to our God. He doesn't share his glory with anybody. You know, one of the biggest challenges in ministry is convincing people of this, of their utter dependence on God, their utter need to embrace weakness, to embrace our weaknesses, to embrace our insufficiency so that his all-sufficiency can come in. It's one of the biggest challenges in life, especially in the Western world. But that's what God wants for each one of us. The cross is a symbol of surrender, and everything in the world says that that's the last option. You only surrender if you have no other options. In the faith, it's the first option. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. Surrender everything that you are to me. And then the third one he says is to follow him. Follow me. And the counterfeit to the following me that the enemy would want to bring in is that this is an anchor of safety. This is incredibly prevalent, that if you just follow Jesus, he is the greatest, he's the strongest, he has all the money in the world, he has all the healing for all the sicknesses, he has everything. So all you have to do is follow him and he'll just blaze a trail and make sure nothing bad happens. You just follow him to safety. Even though when Jesus said, follow me, he's actually saying, follow me to persecution, follow me to hardships, Follow me to sacrifice and surrender. That's the following him that he's really talking about. It's about him being our leader, him being our everything. And we are just his children. We are like toddlers following their dad. We have nothing to offer except ourselves. That's his desire. But Satan would want you to think that it's about leading you into safety. And the best way to do that is to stay in the shallow. That's what your enemy would say. 
we're talking about anchors, we're talking about water and being in, in the water as a boat. The safest place you can be is in the shallows. You know, the waves aren't nearly as bad when you're really close to shore. And if the wind comes, it doesn't really affect you that much. And if something bad happens, you can just jump out anyway. Just stay in the shallow. The boat is much safer there. Everything will be a lot easier if you're just in the shallow waters. And it'll be a lot safer in the shallow waters. But can I tell you today, church, it's not better there. It's not better in the shallow in any aspect of life. Nothing is better shallow. The real purpose in life, the real place that we find purpose and meaning in life is found in the depths. And that's not even just spiritually. That's in every aspect of life. I remember being young. Uh, I never took swimming lessons, and I, so I kind of taught myself how to swim when I was about seven or eight. So until then, every time we'd go to the pool, I'd have to stay in the shallow end. And I remember watching the big kids in the deep end, jumping off the diving board, going down the slides and doing flips and cannonballs in the water. And I remember thinking, I remember clearly thinking, I can't wait till I can swim because that's where I'm going. And one day we were at a hotel and I taught myself how to swim. And from then on, I was in the deep. I was off the diving board doing flips. I was just crazy in the deep water because it just, it was so much better than being in the shallow. The shallow water is for the toddlers. It's for the little kids that don't know any better. Now, let's make it more practical, okay? So most of us in this room and under the sound of my voice have been in some kind of a dating relationship, okay? And a lot of us have been married or are married. And when you're in a dating relationship, especially when it's new, it's a lot of fun, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. When you confess your attraction to someone and they reciprocate it and next thing you know, you're, you're dating, it's fun. There's butterflies when they walk into the room. As a guy, you're willing to talk on the phone a lot longer than you normally would. You're willing to spend more money than you ever would. You're willing to miss baseball games and football games that you never would before. It's easy to be on your best behavior, for a while at least. <laughs> There's just lots of fun that comes with a, with a new relationship like that. You find excuses to do stuff together. You know, well, let's go, uh, I gotta go buy a pencil. You wanna go with me? You know, whatever you gotta do to spend time together. Marriage is a little different. Marriage, you know, the, the butterflies aren't quite as prevalent in marriage when the person walks in the room, except for me. But not everybody can have my marriage, so. She kind of flutters when I walk in. So. <laughs> The phone calls aren't as long. They're usually like, hey, can you pick up some pizza on the way home? You know, much more practical and logical, things like that. Uh, you don't go out on dates quite as much probably when you're married as you did when you were dating. So there's some things that the, the, the feelings, the ooey gooey stuff that comes at the beginning of a relationship, sometimes that isn't as prevalent in a marriage relationship. But wow, there's so much more depth in that marriage relationship, isn't there? There's so much more depth, there's more trust. There's more acceptance, there's forgiveness. You know, when I, I know for a fact, most of you girls, when you're dating, you're not letting that guy see you without makeup. When you're married, pfft. who cares, right? Because there's, a, there's an understanding that you're gonna be accepted because there's a commitment there, there's a depth of relationship there that is so much more than you could ever describe in the shallow places. The, the early dating relationship, let's just be honest, it's shallow because it's just fun. But as you get deeper into a relationship, there's more purpose, there's more meaning in it. 
and there's more value in it. And it's the same thing when it comes to your faith and living out your faith. You could stay in the shallow places with the Lord and just try to get the perks of being a follower of Jesus. You're missing out on so much depth because that's where we're designed to be is in the deep with him. We're designed to be in the deep places. We're designed to not stay in the shallow. And you know what? The people that stayed in the shallow their whole life in their faith, they don't understand why people would wanna go out into the deep where the waves are a lot bigger, where it's a lot more dangerous. There's a lot of things out there that can affect you that living over here can't. But you know, the Bible's very clear. Psalm 42 says, deep cries out to deep. Deep calls out to deep. The deep places are, are, we are designed to long for that depth in our life. It's put in you from birth. And you know it too, because even though the shallow might feel safer, you also know it's pretty empty. It's pretty empty. And as you get older, I mean, Joy and I talk about, it, we're like, man, the shallow, the, like the small talk and relationships, it just, it, it's good and we don't mind it, but it's just nothing like having deep relationships and going to deeper places, even in friendships and with family. Because you know that the shallow is pretty empty and deep cries out to deep. The depth of God is in the deep. The depth, the depth you're looking for in your relationship with him is in the deep places and you have to make your choice to go there. He doesn't pull you in. You don't get swept up by the current. You have to make the choice to go into the deep places, to follow Jesus. He said, follow me. He's taking you into the deep. If you're following him, it's not to hang out in the kiddie pool. It's to go to those deep places, which there is sacrifice there, there's surrender there, sometimes there's persecution there, sometimes there's hardships and difficulties, but it has so much more purpose. It has so much more meaning than anything in the shallow could ever give us. That's God's heart for us. My prayer for you is this. I wanna finish with this verse today out of Ephesians 3. This is Paul speaking, but it's our prayer today too. It says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a wonderful verse, church. Don't miss this. When you read this, don't just read over it and not think about it. Meditate on this. Paul is praying that we could experience the fullness of God, that we would understand the depth of his love. How are you gonna experience the depth of his love in the shallow? You can't do it. You can't experience the deep water if you're in the shallow water. The only way to experience the deep water is to get in the deep water. The only way to experience the fullness of God is in the depths, because that's where the fullness of God dwells. The shallow may feel safer, but at the end of the day, it's just emptier. It's just emptier. I've been, at, I've been at the place where my faith was shallow, where it was based on just a few certain things. I was just trying to do enough to get by. And I can tell you, I'm at a place of depth now. All the money in the world couldn't get me to go back to that shallow place because it's all empty. The only place to find true fulfillment and purpose in our life is in the deep places with God. And listen, I know that if, if we all took some truth serum and I said, who would say their relationship with God is pretty shallow? So a lot of our hands would go up. And I'm not saying that to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad. Because here's the deal. All of us are welcomed into that deep place, okay? In the faith, if you've given your life to Jesus, every one of us are Olympic level swimmers. Every one of us. He is inviting us into that deep place with him. 
And the beauty of it is it's, it's about the choices we make. Are you going to choose to say, yes, I'm going to those deep places with you, God? Or are you gonna to choose to say, no, I'm just gonna stay in the shallow and hope for the best? If you do, you're just gonna stay in that place of being empty and lacking fulfillment in your life. And you've bought into the counterfeit that the enemy is trying to put into your life, making you feel like it's actually better just to stay in that place of safety and shallow. When we know that God's plan for us is so much more than that. Now, some of us aren't even in the water. Some of us are on the shore. If you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus, you're not even in the water in our metaphor here. And can I encourage you today, the water's fine. <laughs> the water's great, actually. The best decision I ever made in my life was to give my life to Jesus. To let his love and mercy and grace pour over me, forgive me of my sins, and to give my life to him in return and let him have the lead in my life. It's the greatest thing I've ever done. And it'll be the greatest thing you ever do if you do it as well. Don't leave here today without knowing that you've given your life to him, that you've determined that you're going to give up your life, you're gonna take up your cross, and you're gonna follow him. It's the only way to go. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Amen. Amen. I wanna pray for you. I'm not gonna ask you to come up, but I want you to be honest with yourself and yourself only. If you, are at a, if you have been hanging out in the kiddie pool, Let's, just, let's decide today to go to the depths, to experience the fullness of who he is. Deep cries out to deep. You have depth to you. You are a deep person. The deep is calling you. The, deep, the depth of God is calling you to that place. It means you have to say no to certain things in life that a lot of other people can say yes to. It means not just doing whatever you want. It means considering him in all things, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And maybe you were in the deep before and you came back to the shallow and you've got to go back and forth depending on the week. Let's make a decision today to stay in that place of depth with our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life that comes from knowing the truth and walking it out. God, you called us to give up our lives, to take up our cross and to follow you. And Lord, we fall short all the time all the time. And God, we thank you that your word is true, that when we confess that you forgive and cleanse, what an incredible promise, that we are justified before you because of what you did for us, that you're, the anchor that you are is what takes us into the presence of God. It's what takes us into fellowship with God. And we thank you for it today, Jesus. And Lord, we have fallen short, Lord. We ask you to forgive us. We thank you that you are always quick to forgive and to cleanse us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to go into the deep waters with you. Lord, that we would not be content to stay in those shallow places, that we would not be content to be on the shore, God forbid, or even in the shallow, but that we would go to those deep places with you because we know that's where the purpose is. We know that's where the meaning of life is. We know that's where we find fulfillment and the fullness of God in our life. I believe every one of us wants to experience the fullness of who you are in our life. We know that comes from going to those deep places with you, to, to embrace our weakness, as Paul said, because that's where your power rests on us. And we thank you for it today, God. Thank you that it's not about our works. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how smart we are. It is about your love, your grace, and your mercy in our life. And we receive it today for your glory, God, and for our good. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. And everyone said, amen.